the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It is a delight to be able to uh, close out the year of uh, really my last interview. Third Hour will be something a little different and special, but uh, my last interview of the year with really one of my favorite people. Um, It's dark and cloudy here in Phoenix. Maybe it's even been considered a kind of a down or damper year. Generally, this man lights candles wherever he goes. He's Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, itself a beacon of light in academia. Pete, um, first of all, thanks for being with us, as always, and Happy New Year to you, sir. And to you, Seth, and just uh, honored to be with you here as we we close out uh one year and and look to another. Yeah, no, listen, the honor is mine. Uh, I want to get to some really impressive news out of your school and and uh, and and public intellectualism generally in a few moments. But first, Pete, I got to tell you, I got to confess um, a little confession to make. I was I was being interviewed. I was on the other side of the microphone for another show uh, earlier today, uh, kind of doing a 2022 wrap up, you know, one of those things, the year in review. Yeah. I got to tell you, I I found myself impossibly pessimistic, and I could not. I just couldn't find the optimism. I I have to tell you, I felt bad about it. The host was in the same position. It was I I I'm, it's a confession to you, and and I don't know if you maybe it's an unfair question. If you have some high or bright lights, the the best I could muster was uh, was on a public policy issue that we won, but I just feels like these these years have been kind of can't wait for next year for the past two, three years. I think COVID did a big number on this country, but I don't know. Can you talk me out of my funk? Well, there certainly is reason for some pessimism. I I tend to be someone who is a is a glass half full kind yes, of guy. Yes, you are. That's um, why I'm so right. glad to have you. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe it's because, you know, we're, we're out here in deep blue California yeah. where – uh, you know, it, it helps to have uh, optimism for sure. Yes. Um, but I would say that the awakening uh, to the awakening piece uh. that you and I have talked about a number of times throughout the year yeah. continues to be a theme that I think bears watching. This realization on the part of everyday Americans, uh, parents of kids in public schools, people working in uh, various corporate environments, uh, certainly uh, in my area of uh, direct interest in in higher education and academia, it just seems that more people, uh, in large part precipitated by COVID, have become aware of uh, some of these uh, cultural change issues and are, are finding ways to engage in them. Uh, certainly when you look at the Twitter files and the, the various releases that have happened, and I'm sure some more to come, it's become evident, at least at the, the top line headline on that, can be that there was a lot of squelching of conservative voices 
uh, in on one of America's major media platforms. And I think that can be extrapolated to other areas of the media in ways that uh, Americans are now, I think, much more aware of, of what's happening in our political culture. And I am seeing ways in which they're getting involved. But in some ways, that's only an indication of the scope and scale of the challenges <laughs> facing us. Uh, but I am encouraged by the number of Americans uh, who really had kind of let let go some of these issues around uh, politics and policy uh, to other people, just trusting the wheels of government and, and the media to present facts as they are and to make decisions in the best interest of most citizens uh, to realize that if they are not involved, that really, you know, some really difficult and, and bad decisions uh, can be made. You know, I like that, uh, Pete. Uh, you're talking about a great uh, awakening or a great relearning that is slowly unveiling or unfolding. Uh, maybe we haven't hit peak peak awareness yet, but but it came this year, and I hadn't thought about that. And that that's a really good point because what some of us have been crying about out in the wilderness is now beginning ever slowly but beginning to make its way into uh, more and more common or accepted knowledge. I don't know if it's an appreciation, but it's certainly knowledge that something very foul, several things very foul uh, with censorship, government intermingling of censorship. And also, I have to say, maybe an adjunct to that is the surrender of the journalist class, by and large, the mainstream media journalist class, to let this go without a lot of notice and without a lot of attention, surrendering a lot of their stuff, a lot of their a lot of their professional integrity uh, is being revealed over this as well. I think and and the, no, it, I think you're absolutely yeah. right, Seth. I th- and I think that in some ways the Twitter files is just a indication of yeah. a larger issue, which yeah. is this connection between government media and social media to as essentially the amplifying uh, platform for. Uh, so-called reporting and journalism. Yeah, I was. I've been. I've been beating this drum for a few days now, um, Pete. Uh, they used to teach in most civics classes or government classes, and they still teach. I think in almost all law schools, the Pentagon Papers case. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it was a culmination of of uh, of an understanding of the First Amendment, in which, when it comes to the protection of the press or the media. The whole idea behind it, it, it's just the best black letter explanation of it I've ever seen by by a unanimity of agreement on a Supreme Court, that the purpose of the media, the purpose of journalism was to censure, criticize government, government's handmaiden and censuring or censoring people. And when you look at, for example, what Elon Musk and uh, these uh, people like Barry Weiss and uh, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and others have been uh, unveiling here, when you look at something like the New York Times and their coverage of it, it's about three stories and one of them from only the FBI's perspective. Um, This has been a huge, huge light, a bright light on on the surrendering of the entire purpose of the First Amendment and the media's uh, protection within it and the point of the protection of it. Right. And of course, if we think about the social media to think that the the political culture and these relationships between social media, government and 
the so-called mainstream media were only happening in the Twitter Twitter case. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. This was this was Facebook, Instagram, yeah. uh, TikTok, yeah. with other influences uh, being brought to bear there as well. Uh, again, I, I think this is a growing uh, awakening to uh, these uh, these relationships that have really controlled much of the messaging Good. about a variety of issues, and I, I think we're right to be suspicious. And I'm sure there's going to be more to come. I mean, we have the interview with Joe Rogan mm-hmm. and Mark Zuckerberg yep. of Facebook, yep. Yep. who was doing the same thing at Facebook. Yeah, right? shamelessly, seemingly was shamelessly. Reaching, yeah, he, it the was, DOJ was reaching out to them about huh. the about the uh, the Hunter Biden laptop right. uh, story, and of course they were squelching that on their platform. So this is something again, this triumvirate between. Uh, government, uh, mainstream media, and social media that needs to be that needs to be examined. Uh, it was interesting and, and to me in that Zuckerberg it. interview with Rogan how shameless is that the right word? Shameless Zuckerberg seemed to he didn't seem to have any shame over it. He was there was no embarrassment. There was no he seemed he seemed like this was just perfectly fine. This was just oh so ho hum. I, I thought that yeah. was an interesting takeaway too. No, that's right, and. and- no questioning or curiosity yeah. as to, yeah. you know, should we be doing real? this? Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 And especially in light of some of the things that came out during the 2016 campaign yeah. and what we learned again about the connection between releases of information regarding uh, then uh, candidate Trump's campaign and the so-called connections to Russia. I mean, we already learned that there was some bad information right being released to the media there, um, the fact that they wouldn't at least be a little bit suspicious, especially when the information from the DOJ seemed to be coming from one side yep. and involved in, in with one campaign. Yeah, absolutely right, Pete. And yeah, there's a lot more to say about that. Let me take a quick commercial break. Uh, and other good news, uh, good news for Pepperdine, good news for Pepperdine students. Uh, I want to talk about uh, something you guys just announced. That's a really big deal uh, when it comes to um, when it comes to teaching, education, and uh, the role of the public intellectual. Pete Peterson, he is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu is the website, and he and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson, he is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Greatly active Twitter feed as well. If you want to follow him there, it's at Pete4CA. It's the number four, at Pete4CA. Pete, there aren't that many public intellectuals in the conservative universe whose name is known almost universally. Uh, in fact, I was just having a conversation with Steve Hayward uh, yesterday and we were talking about who were the public intellectuals, who were the conservative public intellectuals uh, in the 1970s of, of, of wide repute. And I really came up with two, and he, he threw a third in there. I said Buckley and George Will. He said you have to also add Milton Friedman. And I thought that was pretty good. I thought that was a good yeah. addition. Um, yeah, yeah. Today uh, we, we, we have far and few, but you got one, and there is one. Uh, yeah. Victor Davis Hanson, and you guys just did an Wonderfully uh, impressive announcement with the great uh, teacher, Victor Davis Hanson. You want to say a word about that? 
Yeah, I sure do. I mean, you talk about other things uh, that were uh, make me optimistic was right. uh, the opportunity to announce that uh, Dr. Hansen will be returning to the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine as our new uh, Giles O'Malley visiting professor and will begin teaching with us uh, here in Malibu next fall. Fantastic. So uh, this has been something that's been uh, months in the making. Uh, it involved a, a visit with the donor uh, who has named the chair out to see uh, Dr. Hansen at his farm in Central Valley, California, and uh, just uh, so excited to make that announcement right towards the end of this year. And again, he'll be he'll be with us and with our students uh, starting next fall and teaching classes in military history and more broadly the what we would call applied history, how we use history to inform uh, current and future policy decisions. Oh, that's such a great deal for your students. That's such a great deal. I, I am so glad to hear it. It's such a good get for Pepperdine. And it's a perfect match, too. I mean, it's just that's that. Plus, you can drag him down from Central California and expose him to the sunlight. of So maybe he'll stay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a little bit of that as well. You know, he has he has taught with us in the past, just in brief stints here and there. Um, but this is a, a more permanent appointment, and uh, so he's, he's certainly familiar with it. But visiting him on his farm, I have to say, is just uh, is just an incredible experience. I mean, he is really a man of the earth yeah. in many ways, and uh, uh, is on a multi generational farm there that uh, that he runs now. And for your listeners who see him on Fox, uh, you know, though many of those uh, transmissions are done right from the barn, uh, just off the main house at his farm uh, there in in Central Valley, California. So uh, it sounds it, so uh, idyllic, but that is so it great. really is. You know yeah. how you can tell a consi- that you you reminded me you posted this beautifully uh, apt picture on Twitter from. Uh, 1967 of Ronald Reagan yeah. speaking in front of UC. I think that's uh, I think that's UC uh, Berkeley, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, one of the UC schools. In any event, you know how you can tell a conservative professor he doesn't bring up politics in the classroom. Yeah. Th- that's how you yeah. can tell because yeah. this, tell the audience what this picture shows and what it represents. It's a great picture. You know, this was this was actually in in Sacramento's where that oh, photo okay. was okay. taken, but okay. it involved a number of. Students, uh, you're absolutely right. This was 1967. Uh, then Governor Reagan is dealing with a budget crisis mm-hmm. uh, there after becoming governor, soon after becoming governor. And uh, part of the way of uh, the path to resolving that deficit was to uh, reduce uh, some funding or at least increases in funding to the University of California system. And of course, that precipitated. Uh, outrage on the part of uh, students, faculty, and administrators, and and the governor was very much a person. And there, that was one of a number of photos, uh, and I managed to find it on Getty Images, and I'm going to frame it because oh god, it, that's great! It's Governor Reagan standing in front of a banner which uh, says "Keep Politics Out of Higher yeah. Ed," and the irony is, yeah. is that banner was flown by. 
the governor's opponents uh, <laughs> who were who didn't want their budgets cut. Right. And of course, if you're a public university, in that sense, I mean, there there is politics in higher education. Yeah, but absolutely. seen through the lens of today, you know, where we have politics really pervasive in higher education and particularly in our classrooms in a way that squelches uh, free expression. Uh, I just think that's such a poignant photo. It really is. And it leads to kind of a big question I have for you, Pete. Um, and it and it goes back to our conversation in the previous segment, too, about the media's silence, about uh, the social media censuring and censoring. Uh, keep politics out of education. That was the message from the left then. Um, yeah. And I, and I'm wondering if it in some ways still may be the message of the left in higher education in the sense that they don't think that what we, Victor Davis Hanson, you, have to say is acceptable stuff in the classroom. In other words, let me put it the other way. Put the shoe on the other foot, perhaps their foot. They don't think what they're saying is political. What they think they're saying is absolute, uh, universal, and agreed-upon truth. And to them, maybe it's not politics. I wonder if they think that in the same way that I'm guessing— the silence of the New York Times and the Washington Post on the on the censoring of the New York Post and and, and the government's efforts yeah. with Twitter is something that they're not talking a lot about because they, gosh darn it, they agree with it. I'm just wondering well, and, if, and if, it, if there's an yeah, element so to I, that. I, I would point the, the listener yeah. uh, or those who may take that perspective to uh, one one resource and one recent story, which I also tweeted out. One is a book called Passing on the Right by uh, two scholars, uh, John Shields at Claremont and Josh Dunn at uh, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, in which they interviewed uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 conservative scholars about what it's like to be a conservative in academia. And this is a Oxford Press book, so mm-hmm. it's an academically rigorous book. And not a single one of those interviewed uh, made their names wanted to reveal their names (laughs) in the book. Good Lord. And the stories one after another about, you know, uh, being shamed for writing for the Wall Street Journal. Wow. uh, Making sure that they controlled or uh, uh, thought twice about what they were going to research and write about. Uh, This this only reveals a highly ideological, not scientific, ideological, environment that's pervasive again across America. The second is this story I also tweeted out about, which was apparently there's a a new secret society of archaeology scholars and students, uh, doctoral students, who are uh, in a, uh, a chat room or, or a social media group talking about various subjects of their research in archaeology that is revealing things that they believe will get them thrown out of academia. And so they are posting some of their research unattributed. Archaeologists uh, Anonymous. Yeah, you, I, right. I, I wanted to flag that. I flagged that to talk about it with you. Let me take a quick commercial break and pick yep. up on that and what it means, uh, the larger yep. point behind it. I'm Seth Liebson. He is Pete Peterson. He's the dean at the uh, fabulous Pepperdine School of Public Policy, which, as you can hear, gets better and better every year. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Pete, does that music get you a little closer to your, your salad days? Is that more ska, <laughs> the Ico Ico kind of Giacomo Fiane? Getting there. Getting there. Getting, <laughs> getting closer. Asymptotically closer to your right, music right. that you used to uh, perform. Yeah, I, I did flag this point uh, that you uh, you were highlighting. I think it was a tweet that first came out of uh, Steven Pinker's uh, typewriter, yeah. uh, right. The Rise of Archaeologists Anonymous. Yeah, go, s- s- reset that point. It's, a, it's, it's an important understanding what's going on in academia. Yeah, so Steven Pinker, who's a well-known uh, scientist, um, certainly not somebody of the right, yeah. but somebody who is very much about uh, supporting and promoting free speech and free inquiry in academia, mm-hmm. uh, tweeted out a, a story about a, a new group of mostly young uh, archaeologists, both students and uh, Ph.D. scholars, that have taken to posting some of their research online anonymously uh, because at once they want to make sure that their research uh, is available to the public mm-hmm. and contributes in some way to the public discussion around uh, the, their research into what might be called ancient civilizations. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, they're not attributing putting their name to it because they know professionally this could either prevent them from uh, getting tenure if they are pre-tenure scholars or uh, make it more difficult for them to uh, write and publish in uh, various academic journals, which, for those who may not know, publishing is a major part of uh, a, a scholar or professor's uh, evaluation, professional evaluation. Upward trajectory, getting tenure, getting different forms of tenure, going from associate professor to full professor, that kind of thing, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. right. And so um, to think that these decisions uh, about academic journals, serious scientific academic journals, are being made wholly on the basis of science and fact and research. Um, That's just not true. Mm -hmm. And so to think about a field like archaeology, one would think, well, you know, we're we're doing these digs, we're finding these fossils, we're uh, finding these artifacts, and we're uh, making, uh, drawing conclusions on what it might have been uh, like for these ancient civilizations, what contributed to their rise and downfall, so on and so forth, uh, that that this is subject matter that needs to be posted anonymously uh, due to really a, a feeling on the part of these scholars that if they raise inconvenient truths about ancient civilizations, that they will then suffer professional consequences. Again, it's just a window into the broader challenges and again, I, I mentioned in my tweet, I would doubt, just knowing what I know about the field of archaeology, that we're talking about a lot of Republicans here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah. this isn't even a left-right thing. This is just about freedom of inquiry and the ability to uh, state facts as they see them and draw conclusions as they see them, even, even if they're not facts. Uh, the drawing of conclusions just as a way of promoting discourse and disagreement, which is really the foundation of learning, uh, that these scholars uh, are finding difficult, if not impossible, to do. 
I wonder if uh, someday someone will make a movie about Elon Musk or Matt Taibbi the way they did Edward Murrow in his charge against uh, Joseph McCarthy. And because because this is what we're describing here, for those that hear of the McCarthy era, there was this kind of fear in the 1950s from anyone who might be considered a liberal academic uh, who may have may have may have wandered into, a, you know, a discovery of something that might be even quasi left wing. Um, this 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 is what McCarthyism was doing in America to the professoria and teaching professions back then. Um, my dad, as a as a um, practical joke, college roommate of his who was a professor at the time. In the 1950s, my dad, as a practical joke, sent him a uh, at his school a gift subscription to uh, the Daily Worker newspaper, and uh, the, the, the friendship darn near ended. My dad didn't think twice about it, but boy, he, he certainly learned how dangerous that kind of even humor would have been back then. Yeah. And it's it's an odd thing to think about how crushingly oppressive anything just one click or one standard deviation to the right of liberalism uh, in its new terminology is on the campus in the university. You're the outpost. But when we come back, Pete, let's talk about the consequences of that. I think we saw them in sharp relief or are beginning to see them in sharp relief with regard to COVID and science um, scientists and medical professors, professors of medicine when it came to having alternative views on COVID the importance of just what free and open inquiry debate and the Socratic method really, and the scientific method, really could have saved this country if we had abided by it. Can we talk about that when we come back? Of course. I'm Seth Liebson. He is Pete Peterson, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You can follow him on Twitter at Pete4CA. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson, who is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, is with us, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, one of the other things that comes with this whole uncovering of what was done in the suppression of speech, uh, particularly uh, on the campuses um, now, uh, what we're learning is that the censoring, specifically on social media, of people like Jay Bhattacharya or Scott Atlas... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if their message were to have allowed to flourish, if their message, if their doubts, if their concerns were to have been uh, disseminated, you know, the whole point of free speech is that the better ideas will conquer the worse, the lesser ideas. You know, it's 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 entirely likely that a lot more lives actually would have been saved. There is a life and death consequence to this sort of thing is is I think not too high a way or too strong a way to put it. I wonder if you agree. Well, as we've talked about many times this year, uh, Seth, the decisions made uh, by so-called public health experts, which uh, at two levels, one focusing on a particular outcome as being a sign of success, in this case, the belief that lockdowns would uh, reduce uh, cases mm-hmm. as being the sole way to do that and the sole measure of success while excluding the other public health implications of that strategy. That was one failure. But what we're beginning to see now, especially as we look at China and their 
Uh, I mean, we have we have amazing case studies, do we not? Now, when we look at countries, granted, very a lot of different pieces to them, a lot of different um, elements in the policy. But if you look at a a Sweden and you look at a China, uh, where one avoided lockdowns, particularly in schools, and focused their uh, in Sweden their lockdowns really towards the most vulnerable. Uh, you look at a China, which has been much more aggressive nationwide across demographics in in its lockdowns, that at least at this point, it appears that the, the path that Sweden has taken, um, certainly as it regards a broader understanding of public health, mm-hmm. one that includes uh, mental health, educational attainment, and so forth, um, seems to have been the right play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so thinking, uh, but it, it goes back to this other piece that we mentioned in the other segment. Were we allowed to even raise these right. questions? Right. And the uh, what you mentioned before about Jay Bhattacharya and the others uh, that were involved in the in the Great Barrington yeah. Declaration, yeah. Uh, the fact that that was squelched. Um, not only in social media, but the media more broadly. I think Stanford uh, the, may have even voted, the faculty of Stanford may have even voted a, a you know, a, 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 some kind of motion of censure against Scott Atlas at one point, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I know that they were certainly very hesitant to uh, welcome him back yeah. uh, to the Hoover Institution yeah. Yeah. Uh, where he was working yeah. after uh, the, the end of his time in the yeah. administration. Yeah. Um, but again, that's these are the kinds of steps I understand that it was uh, uh, of a of a scope and scale uh, this the pandemic of a historic nature, uh, and in many cases you have to take emergency uh, measures and precautions. But to look at some of the results and not even be able to look back and say, well, what have we learned? Mm-hmm. It seems like we're not really even willing to look back yeah. and say certain things were failures, mm-hmm. uh, especially as we're getting this nation by nation yeah. uh, and state by state data back uh, that really should be informing us toward the next one. Let's forget casting aspersions on decisions that were made. Let's, let's look forward, uh, but do it based on things that were learned the hard way uh, over these last three years. I'm trying to recall our very f- when our very first conversation took place, Pete, mm. but I do remember that when it did take place, one of the issues that you were consumed with and still are was the issue of loneliness in our society, yep. and it's a good one to be focused on. And when we think about that and some of the public health, you mentioned the phrase public health, some of the public health um, strategies, some of the public health messaging, uh, and some of the outcomes when we don't connect the dots, I'm wondering if another institution that took a big hit or deserves to is this notion of public health. You know, public health, COVID, maybe. okay, I get it. Uh, A virus um, that affects the lungs and emanates out from there. But what about the public health of the brain and the public health of the children and the public health of uh, depression? What about the public health in Northern California and I guess increasingly seeping downwards to Southern California 
uh, with regard to uh, opioid and fentanyl abuse. I, yeah. I'm seeing posters. Have you seen these posters in San Francisco? The, uh, the young adults parting, whooping it up in a bar, and it says if you use opioids, yeah. do it with friends, start mm-hmm. slow. And it just seems to me, oh, my God, the idea that San Francisco Department of Public Health is plastering its name on a billboard like that makes me really yeah. question what public health even means anymore. Yeah, you know, that's right. And we have another measure that's been proposed by our one of our state senators around the legalization of uh, hallucinogenic right. drugs as right. well. So we are really... You and I have talked many times that it feels like the 70s. It, yeah. it feels in some ways we're going back to the 60s yeah. now uh, yeah. with some of this as well. Yeah. And all to the end where the the State Police Chiefs Association has come out directly against that. Um, but back to your larger point here around the challenges of loneliness and the fact that we're still counting the costs of uh, the lockdowns, the disconnection of children uh, all the way up through higher education uh, from young adults from one another um, can only be called inhuman in the sense that it's given us, I think, yet another way of understanding the human need for connection. Yeah. Yeah. And while we focused in many cases so much on uh, – caseloads and rate of infection and so forth, while not understanding these other impacts or even really considering them, or worse, when people did raise them, uh, to shout them down and say that you're anti-science. Right. Uh, this is the part of, I think, understanding public health more holistically yeah. that I hope as we go forward, um, you know, we move away from this siloed approach to public health issues and and think about them uh, across the board and understand the trade-offs, especially uh, the impacts on our young. uh, Let let me pick up on that with you. Uh, Let me pick up on that very point with you on the other side of this break. Uh, We take another quick break with uh, Pete Peterson, our guest. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. If you are looking for a career in making your country, your state, your community, the world better, Pepperdine is where you want to go to get that graduate degree in public policy, as you can hear from not only this fine mind and this fine faculty, but this fine commitment to open inquiry as well. Pete and I will be right back. Boy, an hour goes fast, Pete. Thanks for joining us. Pete Peterson has been our guest. He's the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, Public Policy and Children, Pete. Um, let let us do go back to the 60s and 70s for a moment where, you know, the bumper stickers were about the kids, where the big books had children's, the word children and kids in the, in the titles, Kurt Vonnegut, the Children's Crusade, War Isn't Healthy for Children and Other Living Things. There was this commitment to children's brains and bodies that um, seems right now to be, if anything, a commitment to changing their brains and bodies. It's 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 a very sad end to to the last few years. If you want to make a comment on that, it seems to me that the public health needs needs to reverse trend here. Well, but at the same time, and I uh, I have to say, Seth, I haven't really thought about it in these terms since we're we're talking about it right now. 
the origins of our conversation here is what to be optimistic about. Yes, and, I know. I know. Right? I took you and down. So, I waited. And so, I took you down. No, no, no. And I'm about to go there. Oh, I think, again, okay. what, what makes me optimistic good. Good. is this growing interest and awareness in the next generation good. and in our kids. Uh, it is hard to take responsibility as an adult for harms extended to anyone. Mm-hmm. That's just a natural human foible, but unless you're uh, psychotic, right. um, but particularly to our children. And it has been hard. It's been a hard road to get there, but the data just continues to be more and more compelling that the decisions that we as adults made around lockdowns and related policies have hurt our kids. And what has become learned, as we were talking about before, about what's being taught yeah. in those classrooms yeah. because yeah. of those lockdowns yeah. and bringing classrooms into the living rooms and kitchen tables of America uh, has also, I think, increased our concern about our kids. And so in this sense, it may be that the path forward uh, to what we all hope is a is a more flourishing society is one that is is grounded on how we how are we treating our kids good good and are they the playthings of ideology good. or are they going to be really understood to be our next generation that we need to that we need to be better preparing and take responsibility as is so hard to do to take responsibility for bad public policy decisions. And uh, not that we can apologize. I mean, people are making the best decisions in many re- ways that they could. But to take responsibility for that and and to understand that they need to be placed first. And I think upon that, there is a natural forward-looking hope. And you gave me a phrase I'm writing down right now, children as the playthings of ideology. That's a great phrase. I'm going to cite you on that, Pete, uh, as I continue <laughs> to use it. Can't thank you enough for your uh, your charity and your generosity with your brain and your time. And Pete, a very happy New Year to you, and thank you, and God bless you. God bless you, Seth, and uh, happy New Year to thank you, you, too. Thank you very much. I am Seth Liebson. Don't go away. Interesting other hour coming right up. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.